we're uh, starting a new series. Uh, we've been in Romans all summer, and it was uh, it was really fun. It was Paul's gospel, uh, just kind of re- coming at Romans from a different perspective, try to understand um, how Paul was reconfiguring his faith according to um, the revelation that that Jesus, uh, the Messiah, was uh, coming to be, you know, crucified and resurrected, and not whatever uh, other people uh, expected. But having spent time in the New Testament, I think it's good to uh, step back in the old. Uh, we, we, uh, when my friend Mike and I, we think about planning um, sermons, and we, we, we really believe that it's so important to have like a, a, a balanced diet of Scripture, right? So like, you know, some churches, it's like they just want to stay in one spot in the Bible. We really want to make sure we hit everything so that, that we're formed by the whole counsel of Scripture. And uh, this series is called Failing Forward. It's... Um, that's a cool graphic. I think Jeannie made that, where it's like, that's me surfing, uh, and that's me failing forward. Uh, failure, failure is not a bad thing, uh, which is weird, because in our culture, like, people are, people are sort of afraid of failure. Like, uh, to the point that, um, you know, we don't even tell kids that they're, they're failing. We, like, give them a trophy, and we're like, you did, you did, well, you tried, and so here you go. And, and, and there's a, there's something wrong with that, especially when you realize that, that failure is, um, actually like one of the best teaching tools, one of the learning tools that, that God gives us. And so failure is not bad. Well, I mean, it is, but it, it's not as good as success. Uh, but it's also, um, it's something that's part of life. And what's interesting when you look at the Old Testament, we, the, a lot of people think the Old Testament's filled with all these heroes. Well, <laughs> if you read about their lives, their lives are just rife with failure. And so this series is going to be um, in Exodus, a little bit of uh, Deuteronomy, maybe some numbers, but it's really going to be on the life of Moses. Moses is considered uh, Israel's greatest prophet and one of their greatest leaders. And yet when you look at his life, you see that over and over this dude trips over himself. But what's cool is, is that God's gracious and God's pulling him along and says, I'm not giving up on you. And he, and he kind of takes failure as an opportunity to like, Get back up and keep going forward. Uh, this, the, the, so the, the, that's the, the general part of the series. We're starting today with, not with Moses, he's a baby in this story. Uh, but it's, it, we're, we're going to be looking not just his failures, but this week we're going to look at the failures of others. Uh, so we're going to start out with the failures of others, then we're going to get into the failures of Moses. And, and as we do, I think we're going to draw some really cool uh, hope from Scripture and some really cool uh, ideas about how we can live and how we can deal um, with our negative propensities and our failures in, in our life. So with that, let's, uh, let's read. This is uh, the end of Exodus 1 and the beginning of Exodus 2. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the background in just a second. But here's the text. This is from the Common English Bible. I really like this translation. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people. Throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River. Okay? But you can let all the girls live. Seems sexist, but all right. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. And the baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her women servants walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. 
The boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed. Yes, do that. It really, she just says, go. Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And after the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I pulled him out of the water. It's like, it's, it's an interesting text, because it starts out as like horror, and then moves to fairy tale, almost. I want to give you a little background, uh, just to highlight the first thing in the text is then, you know, Pharaoh gave, gave an order. This is actually the second time that Pharaoh has tried to kill all of the, uh, the Hebrew baby, male babies. And the reason for this is, uh, so some time before, hundreds of years, years before, uh, Joseph had, had, had brought in the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, to live and settle in Egypt. And this went really well for a while. It was, it was a really positive experience. The people, the, the people in the Jewish people, the Hebrew people were very successful and they flourished. And it got to the point where the native Egyptians started to get stressed that, uh, that this minority population in their midst, uh, might become, you know, too powerful. And you can actually hear, you know, some of our own contemporary, like, issues. There's a lot of stress and a lot, and it's not just here in the United States, it's all over the world, where there's concern about immigration and emigration um, when, when minority populations begin to expand, uh, then larger culture majorities are like, whoa, we're not sure what to do with this because they're afraid that things might change for the worse. And in this case, what Pharaoh did is the first thing he did is he enslaved all the Hebrew people. Made them as slaves and they made them to make bricks for him so he could build buildings. We, we don't have any direct, uh, evidence from Egypt, uh, that, that there were Hebrew slaves, Yahweh worshiping slaves, but we do know that the Canaanite and Semitic peoples were enslaved on and off, uh, by the Egyptians from at least 4,000, uh, years ago, right up to maybe, you know, 2,000 years ago. We, we, we have pretty consistent records of that. Well, this started to work great for Pharaoh, but then the problem was is that these Hebrew slaves, now they were producing a lot of stuff for Egypt, but they also began to multiply more. They became more and more fruitful. They, they had more and more babies. And so Pharaoh had a very common geopolitical problem. I did a little research, and by that I mean I looked on Wikipedia, and... Uh, it turns out that there's actually only a very few successful ways for limiting population growth. I have a slide here that features four of them. You would think that providing contraception would actually uh, work, but it doesn't. Um, as even when you have free access and, and, and to, to contraceptives, there still seems to be, especially in second and third world and, and the global south, it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on how many, how much, how many babies there are. So if you're in government and you're worried about massive overpopulation, and that is something that governments worry about, well, there, there are only a few tried and true ways of dealing with it. Uh, in the west and in the first world, we've found that, um, affluence, wealth, and uh, promoting the role of women to equality are the two number one indicators that uh, that suppress fertility rates. Um, and 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 the reason. So in the top left there, you have the couple, and they have a dog baby. That's not a real baby. That's a dog baby. That's a new thing. 
uh, that the, the, uh, the millennials in New York are doing. They're, uh, they, they raise a baby dog, um, and, the, and then I guess that's like having a child. In the bottom left there is a woman who's working. We found that in uh, countries in the first world where uh, women are able to be employed and be a part of the workforce, and we found that in countries where there's a great deal of affluence and a lot of possibility for having fun with your money, with your disposable income, fertility rates go down. Now, that's cool, that's great, but that's not on Pharaoh's menu. That's not an option for Pharaoh. Pharaoh can't be like, hey, let's educate uh, all, the, all the, the, the Jewish women and give them jobs. That's not, that's, not a, that's not a possibility. Moreover, he can't be like, hey, let's just make sure they're super rich so that they... Uh, apparently what happens is that when people get wealthy, they, um, they find that they want to spend more time doing fun things rather than <laughs> raising kids because that can be challenging. Uh, and, and then that kind of pushes down the fertility rate. Well, that wasn't an option. Even if Pharaoh knew about those possibilities, that wasn't an option for him, neither of those. The uh, two classic ways of dealing with overpopulation, uh, the top right there is creating refugees. Um, this could be either a bad thing or a good thing, uh, but we're actually seeing it, especially Europe seeing it right now, and, and we are too from, um, from South America, where countries that are in a great deal of political turmoil... Uh, the people there, either voluntarily or not voluntarily, go elsewhere. This is particularly uh, the case for Europe right now with the Middle East, especially Syria, is in the middle of a civil war. And when you're in the middle of a civil war, you don't want to stay there, and so refugees are coming to Europe. Also, um, Africa has an incredibly high fertility rate, and there's not a, they're running out of space and resources, and so people from uh, Africa are moving north to try and get into Europe. Something similar is happening with our southern border. In the United States. In the ancient world, a lot of times, if you had an, a minority population that was an ally to you, you would send them out as like a conquering force. Like, so you would say, hey, why don't you go take over that? You can have it, you do what you want with it, just stay tight with us. But again, that's not a possibility for Pharaoh, right? Because Pharaoh has already, once you've enslaved a people, it's going to be difficult to let them go and be like, but we're allies, right? Sorry, sorry we broke your back all those years. No, actually, uh, Pharaoh, um, he's, he instituted the world's first one-child policy. Say what you want about um, the idea that we should just... Um, well, in the case of China, they just aborted all the um, extra kids. Uh, Pharaoh didn't have access to mass abortion, so he first tried to get the midwives to smash the babies um, on the birthing rock that they were sitting on. The midwives said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Um, and then, so he made a policy where instead we're just going to throw every male baby into the water. This isn't Moses' mom's fault. She was born at the wrong time. And she encountered a situation that no mother should have to encounter. But like any uh, mother, any parent, really anyone with a, gosh, a heart, you don't take a policy like this lying down. That's the first thing you know, Sheets. Um, when others, especially those in power, fail, 
Failing forward requires creativity and dependence on God. And we're going to see both of those aspects, creativity and dependence, as we move through the text. And uh, I, I, I mentioned power because um, for those of us who are in leadership or uh, have influence, you know, when we screw up, the ramifications are way worse than when someone who's not in a position of power or influence screws up. Um, because our decisions have consequences that can be radically uh, horrific for those who depend on us. Going back to the text. Let's go back to the text. Uh, this is, uh, this is so, so Moses' mom, she gives birth. She hides him for three months. She can't hide him much longer because he's going to get bigger and louder, basically, is the issue. And so when the, when the Egyptians come to enforce their policies, they're potentially going to hear him crying. Right? So what does she do? She can't hide him any longer. She took a reed basket, sealed it up with black tar, put the child in the basket, and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The reeds, probably to keep the basket in place. The last thing she wants is for the baby to drift off down the river. So she puts it in, uh, in the middle of, of reeds so that the baby's going to be mostly uh, not moving. Um, and she seals the, the basket with black tar. This indicates that probably it's like a box, right? Um, so if you had an image of like baby Moses swaddling, like laughing and giggling as he's floating down the river, that's not what's going on. She's making this box as watertight as possible uh, because she's in an emergency situation. And she has to buy some time, essentially. She's not in a situation where... Um, she has a long-term plan here. She's, she's got just a, she, all she's doing is saying, hey, I can maybe buy a day for my boy. Right? Because what's going to happen is, you know, he's sealed in there. So if someone doesn't come and rescue him, he's probably going to starve to death or, you know, lack of hydration. When, uh, when I was uh, helping move uh, Brett and Trina, uh, Brett, my brother-in-law, one of the things in their bedroom is Brett, I think really wisely, uh, has put together kind of a bug-out bag. I think he has a name for it that I can't re- repeat here. But it's, uh, it's something for, like, when everything goes bad, right? Yeah, uh, we have, here we're worrying about the big one, the big earthquake. If you're a child, uh, and you were a child in the 90s, you were terrified because people told you that the big one earthquake, do I have a picture of that? Yeah, the big one earthquake was going to come and, and destroy everything. Now people are a little more concerned about the zombie apocalypse. That's what people are uh, prepping for these days. Uh, I did some research to check on what would be a good bug-out bag, and I came up with uh, two that I really liked. The one on the left, uh, it was probably put together by someone who's actually experienced an emergency. The one on the right was put together by a 14-year-old who just imagines how cool it would be to like kill people during riots. And so uh, the one on the right there features, uh, I think, three guns, two knives, a hatchet, um, a machete, and uh, awesome. This kid's, I, this kid needs help. If, uh, if, that, if you're this kid or you know this kid, please have him come talk to me. We're going to get that aggression out in a, in a healthy way. Um, a real bug out bag, a real emergency bag is one on the left. The one on the left has things like water <laughs> and food, uh, a canteen. Uh, it even has, I think, dog food in case your pet's coming with you. The idea of a bug out bag, though, the bug out bag is this. It's like when everything falls apart, you're trying to buy yourself 72 hours. Right? 72 hours. You're trying to figure out what you can do to survive for 72 hours, protect you and your family the best that you can. Why? Because you're in a situation where you're powerless. Right? You're out of control. There is no long-term planning here. But you can do some stuff. You can do a few things to prepare. Um, and, and, and so you want to have like a situation where you take what you can control and you develop a plan for that. And then after that, 
honestly, there's nothing else you can do. If the big one comes or the zombies start popping up out of the graves, there's, not, there's only so much you have control over. And so notice that you know, what, what Moses' mom's doing is very similar to what we're doing. We're, get, get, we're prepping, doing bug-out bags. And, that, and that's because, this is the next thing in your note sheets, it's because um, when Pharaoh failed, Moses' mom had a plan. But part of the plan involved letting go. You know, if the, if the big one comes and shakes us all up, or you lose your job, or there's a relationship, someone in your life who just turns on you, in situations like that, you do not have control over everything as much as you might want it. You have control over some things. Moses' mom could, could nurse him for three months. She could put together a basket. She could find tar. She could buy him 72 hours. That's what she could do. But after that, and imagine this, imagine this happening, where a mother takes her three-month-old newborn, puts him in a basket, sets the basket in the water, and then has to let go and walk away. And yet, when we're in a situation where the people around us have failed, especially people with influence and power, we come to a place where we're like, I can plan for a few things, but a lot of what's about to happen is me letting go. There's probably somebody here who's in a situation something like this. I, uh, I, I, I hear, I, I meet with people and talk with people all the time. People who are in crisis situations who, uh, the, it's no fault of their own. Um, but they're trying to figure out, after this failure of others, how do I move forward? And I have a couple of questions maybe uh, we, could, we could ask. Um, so the, the, the failing forward, uh, following the Moses mother plan. The first question is, what don't you have control over? You know, it's crazy. It is crazy. When crisis happens, every single time it happens, someone else has failed, some health thing has happened, people come to me, and, and the very first thing that we're doing when we talk is we're coming to a place where we recognize no, you can't fix this. No, you don't have power over what this person's doing. And so there's a focus then, okay, well, if you can't control that, then, then maybe we can get some small things. How can you buy some time? How can you have a plan? Like, what, what can you do? But what do you have to let go of? That's the next question. What am I keeping under control that I might need to let go? See, the thing is, you think you're keeping it under control, but you're not. Uh, you're actually probably making things worse. Uh, what you're really tasked with doing is, is stop pretending. Moses' mom has him for three months, and after three months, she's got to stop pretending that she can do something about this. So she puts her bug out bag together. She puts him in the river. She's bought him all the time she can, and she lets go. I don't want to uh, downplay how hard it is for you and for me to let go of stuff. I, I don't get it because I haven't actually walked in your shoes, but there's been places in my life for sure, of course, where I've wanted to hold on. Like, ah. It's 
sometimes you just have to let go. Let's go back to the text. I love this. So the, the baby is sitting there, and, and the baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Uh, CEV does a great job with stood watch. This is the same verb uh, that you get when you have like a, a person who puts themselves on sentry duty, right? Standing a post. And so you can imagine, uh, you know, the sister like finding a spot where she can, she can get a good look and she's watching. Ready at a moment's notice to do anything she can, but what do you do when your kid's floating in the water? I do a lot of, uh, a lot of hospital visits. I go to the hospital, I see a lot of people. I, if, you're, if you're wondering what the best hospitals are, you can ask me, I'll let you know. Um, I have some favorites, some places I like to go. One thing I've noticed is I spend a lot of time in hospital waiting rooms. And uh, whoever's designing hospitals is doing a really bad job. Uh, because hospital waiting rooms have got to be the most depressing, horrible places in the world. And it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to make a hospital waiting room uh, a little bit better. But obviously, whoever, whoever's designing these things is, is not prioritizing this. They're not prioritizing the, the family the lo- of the loved, one, the loved ones. All they're trying to do is get them out of the way. And so they give you magazines that you don't want to read. Because um, who reads magazines anymore? They have, they, occasionally, if you go to a nice place, I think, uh, is it Saddleback? I think Saddleback Memorial has a, a TV on in there. The remote control does not work, and it's always showing Ellen, the Ellen show. So, uh, and I'm not a fan of Ellen, so that's a horrible experience for me. Um, they do give you free coffee, but it's, it's crazy, though. If, you're, if you get the coffee, if you start using it, then someone will walk by and be like, hey, have you given blood lately? I'm like, whoa, lady. She's like, well, it seems like you're going to be here for a while, so I'm just wondering if you want to you know, donate some blood. I'm like, no, I'd rather not pass out. Um, I hate giving blood. Right now, I'm sorry having heart palpitations. Why don't you get the heck out of here? Uh, the reason I, I say this is because uh, I know that like the worst part of um, life when other people have failed and you're dealing with the fallout and you're trying to move forward is the waiting part. Um, because what you're doing, and this is in your note sheets, you're waiting on God to act. There's nothing else you can do. You've done your part, right? You got your bug outs back together. You bought 72 hours. You did the best that you could. And now you're sitting there. And it's awful. You'd imagine, uh, we're not sure if it's Miriam, but Moses' sister, watching and maybe hearing the cries. Uh, for those of you who've uh, heard your child cry, and especially when you can't help your child, it's one of the worst sounds in the world. So she's watching baby brother trapped in a black box, crying, nothing she can do. You're hoping that, you know, this uh, marriage is going to work, but you can't control what he or she does. You put your resume out. You made as many calls as you could. You got the sit-downs with the right people. Your kids studied real hard. And you helped. You put the time in. Now, 
See how the test went. Those are pretty rough moments. That kills me, you know, I, uh, especially with the hospital thing. Like, my experience is that about 80 to 90% of the time, everything goes great. Um, and so I usually, am, I'm like the cheerful one. I'm like, oh, back at the hospital. Hey, how's everyone doing? All right. The people who are there are freaking out. Um, I know that things are going to be fine until they're not. In the last uh, week, I had two, two people who, you know, should have been real simple procedures and things went haywire. And people got really scared. And what do you do in, the, in, that, in that, that situation where you're waiting on God to act, right? Well, um, I want to bring back our, our question sheet because this is really, this is, you know, these are the gut check questions. Like, what, are, what, what can you do when these situations are going on? Um, so you, you don't have any control. You've, you've isolated those things where you need to let go. Okay, now you're in the waiting zone. What is it that you're doing to distract yourself? What are your go-to distractions? Uh, distractions are not a bad thing. Um, they're, it's, it's very natural for human beings to, uh, to try and come up with ways to deal with stuff that we can't control. And one of the ways that we do that is we distract ourselves. But there is a difference between a healthy distraction and a distraction that's going to make things worse. Um, I'm all about, you know, like whipping out the cell phone and checking um, how things are going in, in the news. That, that, that's cool. That's, that's great. And it's going to buy you a few minutes. But really, one of the things that's going on when we're, when we're in this place is we're waiting on God to act, right? Because really, it's in God's hands now. We've done all that we can, so it's up to God. Well, then maybe what we should be doing is finding ways to, to wait well with God rather than wait with Siri and Google. So how can I wait in a way that is more God-directed, worshipful? Um, and and there's, a, there's a practical and a spiritual reason for this. The practical reason is when you're focused on God in the midst of the waiting, and when you're remembering who God is and what God's like, the faithful, loving God, the God doesn't quit on you, th- then you might have a little more hope, and it might be a little less difficult to get through this. Number one, from a spiritual aspect, God, I mean, maybe one of the reasons God's allowing all this crap to go on is because God is like, hey, I'm here, and I really wish you would pay attention to me. And I'm not saying that every time something goes wrong, God's out there like, you know, I'm giving you cancer so that I can get you to worship me. That's ridiculous. No. But there is probably an element of God being like, hey, I'm here, and really what this whole life is about is about you and me being uh, simpatico. And, and, and I get that you're just trying to pass the moments, waiting for me to do what I'm supposed to do, but couldn't we spend some time together while you're waiting? Wouldn't that maybe be a little more healthy? Says the guy who's super addicted to his cell phone. Look, I get it. But just because I'm a bad example doesn't mean I'm doing it right. Let's go back to the text. My favorite part. So, the, you know, Pharaoh's daughter is coming by, and she's like, oh, uh, look at this. And she opens up the back. It's a baby. Don't you love this, the way this is told? This must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby's sister said, where'd she come from? She's like, Poof, she's there. Like, in the way, the, the way that they tell the story. There's none of this, like, like uh, Moses' sister, like, climbs through the, uh, the, the reeds to get there. No, she's like, bam, she's there. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, you don't look like you're nursing. What if I told you? Just 
crazy coincidence, I knew somebody who could feed this baby. How do you feel about that? Huh? Pharaoh's daughter, yes, really, go, sends her out. The girl went and called the child's mother. Man, the sister is solid. You know who's not solid? Mitchell Trubisky. It had, it looks, football season has started. So, and, and as is my pattern, I must make fun of people that I hate. And right now I hate Mitchell Trubisky, the quarterback of the Bears. I grew up being kind of a Bears fan. I remember those SNL skits, Ditka. Those were awesome. And I, I like the idea of the Bears. Mitchell Trubisky is a horrible quarterback. Seems like a decent person, and I don't want to have to be the one to tell him these, that I'm not saying he's a bad human being, but he's getting close for me. He's, he's just about to cross that line. Part of my animus comes from the fact that I'm in a fantasy football league, and uh, Mitch Trubisky puts up three points in the game on Thursday, but somehow manages to send 102 yards to the wide receiver of the guy I'm playing against, giving him 15 points. I can't even describe how upset I am about this. I mean, I know it's first world problems, but I am enraged. And so I'm... So let me tell you why Mr. Trubisky is horrible. It's not that he's not uh, an amazing athlete. He is. His accuracy is fantastic. He, um, he's incredibly a- uh, athletic. Honestly, very good looking, too. He's the whole package. With one exception... This guy can't make a decision to save his life. Now, I don't want to soft pedal. I get it. Being an NFL quarterback has got to be one of the most challenging things you could possibly do. I can't imagine what it's like, you know, these 290-pound guys coming at you like the speed of a freight train trying to break your legs. I get it. That must be absolutely horrible. But if you're getting paid $30 million or whatever, get it together, Mitch. The key to being an NFL quarterback, and they've, they've done studies on this now, they know this is true, the most important thing for a quarterback to be successful in the National Football League is to be able to make decisions wisely and quickly. This is the most important thing. Literally, microseconds count. Uh, you take the hike. If you're a quarterback and you are supposed to throw, you usually have four possible targets. You've memorized, because you're, you've done your homework, you've memorized the routes. You know these guys. You know exactly where they're going to be. So you check one. See uh, if your primary receiver is open. If he's not, you go to check two. If he's not open, check three. If he's not open, check four. You have to do this in a very, very quick amount of time. Sometimes you're here, then there, then here, then there. And all the while, you're being attacked by ferocious uh, lions of men who are... They're, they're genetically engineered to kill you. And so you're like, ah. and on top of that, you have to, you, so you, the most important thing is given all the stuff that's going on, is making a snap decision and making it right. Trubisky, God bless him, can't do this to save his life. I also hate Tom Brady. <laughs> but I grudgingly admit that the man is the greatest quarterback of all time. Did you hear, did you, did you hear this? They got Antonio Brown yesterday? What the heck? At a certain point, you gotta be like, God, where's the justice? <laughs> like, like, I'm waiting, Lord. I'm waiting for you to punish the Patriots. Anyway, Tom Brady, uh, so he's 42 years old. This guy is the best decision maker in the history of the NFL. It's uncanny how good he is at like, he, he always makes the right choice. And he's got, what, seven Super Bowl rings to prove it? 
Uh, Moses' sister is in the same, same deal here. Where what, what The difference between Mitchell and Tom is that Tom discerns the situation and he strikes when the striking is hot. He sees when the door is open. He executes. Mitch is like, dude, you should have seen it. I almost died because uh, already uh, Robinson, this, this wide receiver, already has like 102 yards. So I'm just like, please end this game. And it was a glorious moment because Trubisky is like looking and, and Robinson's wide open. He's like down the field. It's like a game-scoring touchdown. Trubisky's like, what do I do? Ah! And he just throws the ball away. I was like, thank you, Lord. No discernment. Doesn't know when the door is open. Can't read the situation. Can't step in, make a play. When others have failed around you and you're trying to deal with the wreckage and you want to move forward, you can't, you don't have a lot of options and you're sitting there, you're waiting, you're waiting for God to act. Well, here's the key. You need to know when He does. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Failing forward requires the ability to discern when God has opened the door. I, and you would think that, I mean, I guess in this situation, for Pharaoh's, uh, for uh, Moses' sister, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> like, that one's a no-brainer. Like, oh, the daughter of the Pharaoh is here and has discovered my brother and wants to save him. Let me jump in. That's, not a, that's, that's low-hanging fruit there. In the real world, for us now, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes it's like, well, maybe this, well, maybe that. Maybe I should do X. Maybe I should do Y. And if you're waiting well, you're doing a lot of praying. You're probably doing a lot of being in Scripture. You're, you're thinking about how God moves, how God works. But it's, it's beyond that. It's beyond that. You're also a part of a community. And if you're not, you should be. In order, discernment is usually not a solo thing. Usually it's a communal thing. You discern, trying to figure out the right thing to do in the right situation, it's, you know, it's something that you typically share with people, like if you're married, with your spouse, um, usually your friends, and, and ideally your church community, the people around you that you trust. And so i got a couple more questions here. Uh, number five, what steps do I take to discern when and how to act? So you're in the waiting zone. It's crisis time. Others have failed. You've planned your bug out bag. You're waiting for God. You're saying, okay, God, I'm looking, for, I'm looking for your movement. Well, what steps do you take to know when that happens? Chances are God's not going to like bend down and be like, hey, buddy, this is your moment. Go for it. That probably isn't going to happen. Sometimes it does. But usually it, it, it's something that you, you need to have, like, a, you know, that's your plan. Like, I, I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to be uh, in Scripture. I'm going to be thinking about the future and where I believe God is, is calling me to go. I'm going to be thinking about the gifts that I have and how they're going to be actualized and, and, and energized by this next step. And so I need to look to see where those gifts are best employed so I know what would look like a fit. Number six. Who helps me discern what God is up to? Who are your trusted people? Who are the ones who are around you who can say, yeah, you know what? That just doesn't seem like that's what God has. People who you know have your best interests at heart and who are deeply sensitive to the movement of the Spirit. People who time and again have made the wise choices. You know, if you're wondering, like, you want to know how to be a good quarterback, you don't ask Trubisky. He doesn't know. You go ask Tom. He's figured that out. In all, um, 
you know, all jokes aside, like, you got to think um, about the situation that Moses' family is in. And, you know, you may not be in a situation where, you know, the lives are on the line. You might be. Um, but all of us, I think, can, can recognize that, that there's going to be a time. Maybe you're in the middle of a time where someone around you, someone who ought to be doing better, doesn't. And the massive fallout for you and for your life is horrific. But I think God's promise in this text, and I think to all of us, is that, you know what? The story's not over. And no matter how crazy and bad it looks, there is a way to take this failure and move forward. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the failure that comes uh, from when we um, rely on ourselves too much. Uh, Let's pray. Gracious God, um, thank you for uh, just showing us what it looks like to have an emergency plan, to, to know that there's always a way forward, that you're always looking uh, to make us move forward, even when things are really, really bad, even when we're out of control, even when others have really wrecked um, life for us. I pray that uh, we'll all be people who are um, we're willing to, to step in and act, come up with plans, but also willing to let go and to recognize what we can't control and what we really have to give over to you and surrender to you. I pray that we'll be people with eyes open so that when you um, open up a door, when you show us the way forward, that we'll discern it, we'll know it, we'll be in community with people who can show it to us, and and we'll jump in, we'll act. And God, I just pray a special blessing on those who are in the waiting right now, who are really um, just hurting because uh, they just need to see uh, something happen. Just be with them, God. Be with us as we wait patiently as best we can and reveal yourself uh, through your spirit and through your people so that we know that we're not alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.